0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Yash Patel, who joined Tesla Ventures in 2014 and leads Testra Ventures consumer tech investing efforts with an emphasis on esports, gaming, social media, e-commerce, Web3, and SaaS. Yash has sourced and led Tesla Ventures investments in BigCommerce, Nasdaq, B-I-G-C, Snapchat, Skills, Near, Mobile Premier League, Super, OMAZ, Sleeper, Team, Solo Mid, Fit On, Swish, and more. On today's episode, we talk about what should founders think when they are facing a possible down round, how important is being seen as a thought leader in the world of VC, why should founders not rely on investors for a bridge round, how does a venture capitalist attract the best investments, what happens to a fund when they start to have some logos on their website of known companies, and much more. All right, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Yash, I'm super excited for today's episode. For our audience, can you give a little bit of background of your career up until this point before we dive into the questions?
1: Yeah, happy to, Sean. And thanks for having me. Really, I started my career after I did a degree in mathematics at University College London in the UK in investment banking, right? So at the time, I was doing what you're doing. And really, that was the popular path, that or consulting or investment banking, but started off in investment banking and eventually ended up coming back to Foster City here in the Bay area and working for Jefferies and their tech media telco arm effectively. And uh, a function of an acquisition of a company called Broadview back in the day, which was one of the larger kind of tech M&A, shops back in the day. And while I was at Jefferies, I really gained a lot of exposure, especially in the digital media and kind of internet sectors, but also in the SaaS space as well with a lot of interesting enterprise software companies that we had mandates for in terms of mergers and acquisitions, as well as capital raises. And so I basically worked there, did my analyst program, and then ended up joining one of the clients of Jefferies at the time, a company called ad Knowledge, which is effectively a digital ad network network that was doing really well, particularly in social back when mobile and social was quite big with Facebook emerging as well. So I was a director of corporate development and strategy there helping with the new initiatives from a product perspective, but then also looking at all sorts of acquihires and M&A deals that we could execute on. That business grew to about 300 million in revenues. And at the time, we saw that the ad network business wasn't going to be as sustainable moving forward with Facebook and Google emerging as the primary Toopoly in terms of digital ad spend, and so we looked at an M and A process. And what's interesting, going back to where I am now, which is Telstra Ventures, is one of the potential buyers that the investment banker that we engaged with at the time had introduced us to a company called Telstra. And Telstra Ventures is where I'm at right now. But Telstra, for those that are not familiar with it, is effectively the Verizon of Australia, so the largest telecommunications company in the region. And they, at the time, along with Singtel, which owns a company called Optus, which is another big telecommunications company, were very interested in moving beyond kind of being a pipes company and looking at the digital ad space, the digital space in general. And so long story short, I ended up learning more about Telstra. And it happened that a guy named Mark Sherman, who was coincidentally working not too far away from me in downtown San Francisco, was setting up Telstra Ventures, the venture capital arm of Telstra. And so I joined about, gosh, nine years ago to this day. So I'm either doing something really wrong or really right. I feel like, and helped really spearhead and lead our kind of investing efforts uh, across a lot of different sectors, enterprise software, as well as consumer tech. And that's really where I focus my time on today is really just great entrepreneurs, great product market fit across both both those sectors, and then some emerging ones as well, like climate tech and a few others. So that's where I started from. But there's always
0: a little connection between the jobs that I had post-college. For the switch from investment banker to venture capital, what were some of the new skill sets or knowledge or I don't want to say wisdom, but what did you have to learn or adapt or change to to fit from one role to the other?
1: It's a great question. I'd say investment banking gives you a great technical kind of foundation, right? So you really understand how to value companies, you really understand valuations, really how to read financial statements, P&L's, etc, and really get into the story of a company looking at many of these kind of financial statements for 14-15 hours a day. I'd say that is very helpful. But when you move as move into venture capital, I think the skills that are helpful are not just around technical analysis of companies, but really around reading people because ultimately we're investing in people. And so it's about relationships. It's about networking. And so I'd like to say I was naturally a bit more extroverted. And so I, I found that transition was pretty good for me because I frankly was craving more of that type of work while I was in investment banking rather than sitting in Excel all day helping come up with these valuation analysis, which was very helpful as well. So when I think about the soft skills that you develop in investment banking, but don't fully utilize, I'd say interpersonal relationships, networking is key, right? When we have our own LP investors look at investing in us, they want to understand that we have a proprietary moat, which is effectively our network, right? And we can not only find great entrepreneurs, but we can quickly diligence great companies by checking in with a few other experts in our network. And so building that up over the last nine years has been pretty instrumental for myself, but I'd say that's pretty critical for anyone in the venture capital space. So that wasn't something you really did as a young investment banking analyst until you get to the, usually it's the VP, director, managing director kind of level, when you end up being effectively more of a salesperson rather than executing on deals.
0: That's really interesting. So how would an LP kind of put a value on a network? Because yeah, they could say, wow, Yash has all this access to deal flow. He has all these relationships, but from sitting on the other side of the table, how can they quantify that?
1: Ultimately, it comes down to your track record and the deals that you've done, right? And so if you have a great money multiple, and IRR for a certain deal, they'll kind of look at, hey, how did you, and they ask very explicitly, how did this, how did you source this deal? And many times it's, sometimes it's a cold outreach, more of a thematic kind of process that I might've gone through. But many times it's a referral from an existing investor that we've co-invested with deals with in the past or an entrepreneur in our portfolio who tends to see a lot of interest interesting deals. And so LPs get very granular around attribution there. And so they want to understand how many of your deals have actually been sourced through a network versus cold outreach. And they'll actually put a weighting around that as well. And sometimes not one is better than the other, because I think being thematic and cold outreach is also a great way to find new companies. But in an increasingly more competitive VC environment, which it was up until kind of the more recent, it was very important to also have allies and that's other co-investors and that's effectively your network. And so they'll value your network Work based on how well your deals have done, right? And so that ultimately is one of the most important things that we try to ensure when we're making new investments is that we continue to build out our network and source great deals. That top of funnel is really important. And then narrowing it down, each one of our investors does two to three deals per year, but we probably see hundreds, thousands of deals a year. So it's a pretty selective process. And for us to get conviction, we need to have a strong network of experts and other co-investors we feel comfortable partnering with.
0: I'm curious because you'll often hear in Silicon Valley VCs and that FOMO fear of missing out. And wow, that VC invested in this other invested in this other invested in this other invested. How much of that do you think is that kind of that network effect where it's who are your allies invest in? Okay, we're investing along with it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'd say that there definitely is, especially for more tourist VCs or folks that aren't doing this on a day-to-day basis, but there's definitely a certain amount of weight that's put on a quote-unquote Tier 1 VC fund leading a seed or Series A round, right? So, and I'm thinking of the usual suspects like Sequoia Capital or maybe even Andreessen Horowitz or Excel, some of the bigger folks that have been around for decades, right? And NLPs even have a bit of that kind of bias as well. And so I, I'd say for us, we try to be not contrarian, but we try to think on our own two feet. And and we look at more of the kind of validation that the specific partner at maybe a larger fund who's led the deal, gives us more confidence that they, they actually understand this space. And so we do a lot of primary diligence, but we also do take in other signals, like where a founder's background is from, who are the other co or sorry, the co-investor on the cap table to understand how in-depth are they in a particular domain that the startup is operating in? And more importantly, can they be value-added members? So there's certainly BOMO out there and it's really natural, but I think that's dissipated more recently with a lot of the tourist VCs sort of leaving with the more kind of macro environment being a bit more tough to get deals done. And so that's, for us, That's really important, but I'd say we try to not to get lost in any of the FOMO. In fact, we tend to avoid in 2021 and even in 2022, we did far less deals than at the time we thought we should have done more deals, but far less deals than many of our peers. And part of that was we were avoiding a lot of FOMO. And part of that was we wanted to understand where the market was actually going.
0: You'd mentioned the Taurus VC is no longer in the picture I want to steer towards what's happening now. There's well, there's a lot of talk in the news. There's a lot of startups that have a little fear anxiety of potential down rounds. What should founders be thinking in the face of a potential down round?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like to back up for a second, the macro is quite tough right now when you think about inflation and the Fed potentially getting more hawkish and really that affecting the availability of free capital, right? Or free cash, right? Or cheap cash. And so, what that implies is that if you're a founder and you have less than a year's worth of cash runway, you really need to think about several options to basically ensure that you have at least 18, maybe ideally 24 months of cash runway, And so a lot of times that's maybe through a down round with the existing investors or even new investors. We've seen some high profile down rounds recently, like Tonal, the exercise tech enabled fitness company, which did a down round at 90% of its valuation. That's a probably a bit more extreme. But then you also see structured rounds, right? Where you see capital being raised at terms that might not be ideal for existing investors or more importantly, existing Existing founders who hold common stock and are last on the liquidation preference. And then you also have alternatives around venture debt. And and obviously we saw one of the larger players out there almost really go under completely called Silicon Valley Bank, which I'm sure everyone knows about. But they played, and there's other banks out there like First Republic, continue to play a, a big part of the ecosystem in terms of underwriting venture debt or some of these fast growing startups that might be losing cash early on. And so you've got all these options. And if you're an entrepreneur, the one thing that i always advise is think about your founder stock, your early employees stock and your common stock because you're last on the liquidation preference, right? And so if things somewhat go something goes sour, you're not going to get paid out anything and your latest investors that are at the top of the liquidation preference, the preference investors, are going to get first left. And so in order to avoid that typically i recommend doing more vanilla deals that are more down rounds so the only thing you're really changing is the valuation but you don't have like a 2x liquidation preference for new money coming in or you don't have some special warrant coverage or some sort of way of diluting existing investors more than need be so i think for us for myself we take a very founder centric view right We're trying to do what's best for the founders the employees and that also is good for earlier investors but i'd highly recommend avoiding Many of these quote unquote predatory terms that sometimes emerge and I predict will continue to emerge in 2023.
0: Well, let's talk about those predatory terms. If say there's a VC that approached a company with that post when things are good times, with those VCs, would they still be considered allies to the other VCs? Because I mean, there's predatory to the startup, but also to the other investors in a way.
1: It depends how predatory the terms are, right? And it depends if it's an existing investor or a new investor. And so on one hand, you've seen funds like Insight, And others set up specific structured fund vehicles. And those are more for pre IPO, late stage. Companies that really don't have any other option. I'd say at the earlier stages, at the A, B, and C, you have a few more options in terms of funding. And uh, and for those existing investors, it's important to for those that are considering giving out these quote unquote predatory term sheets, it's important to consider your reputation because reputation is everything, right? Not just with your founding team and the employees and the employee and the key management of the startup that you'd like to invest in, but other co-investors. Because going back to my earlier point, your co-investor network, your network in general, is one of your biggest moats as an investor. So if you are giving too many predatory term sheets and really trying to squeeze these companies unfairly, you'll get a pretty bad reputation. And I don't think you'll last too long. And that's happened before. And we've seen, and I'm not going to name names, but we've seen investors advise us to avoid a certain partner or a certain investor because they tend to be very selfish in the sense that sort of not thinking in terms of fair terms around what a company should be offered in terms of financing. And, And it's very, very weighted towards a risk adverse investment that really has no downside for for the new investor. A lot of
0: potential upside for that new investor. So it's it's pretty interesting. So let's look the opposite. Instead of VCs that give out predatory, what about VCs that give out very friendly ones? I mean, how often do you or other VCs really recommend, hey, to fill this round, talk to these people. We like to work with these this group. They they we've had a history. They're good people. how often does that come up?
1: I, it comes up a lot, and not so much in the sense of terms or valuations, but being a good board member and partner at the board level, being thoughtful and adding insights and and really being cooperative, but not at the same time being a pure cheerleader to many of these boards. There's quite a few thoughtful partners out there and we recommend them highly when the opportunity presents itself. And so for us, that's how we think about recommending good VCs. I'd say in 2021, there was so much focus on valuations and you could get really high valuations and markups and a lot of capital. There was definitely that angle where we would recommend VCs that maybe are more passive, but are very interested in investing in the company and would give us a 2, 3x markup, which is nice on paper. But it's not the first piece of criteria that we're looking at. It really is ultimately about the people. And going back to my earlier point, we think venture is absolutely a people first game, both on the entrepreneurs we're investing in, but also the co-investors that we partner with. And that's not to say that we don't use a lot of data and we have a data science team internally as well as look at a lot of quantitative metrics and KPIs to get conviction. But ultimately, we're betting on people because these companies are usually roller coasters and people are the the ones that really are in charge of riding the rocket ship when things go south and then also get all the credit when things do well.
0: What about... Going back to current situations, bridge rounds. Yeah. Here, there's a lot of founders that are thinking, my existing investors, if we have issues, they'll help us weather the storm. Is that a good train of thought, bad train of thought? What are your thoughts of bridge rounds? So bridge rounds are fine. And we just participated
1: in one in, in a company as a new investor. But the key for entrepreneurs is you've got to think about what the bridge is leading to, right? You can't have a bridge to nowhere. And All too often, we'll see entrepreneurs ask for a bridge round from existing investors when things are going well, but there's no milestones that are clear that they'll achieve. There's no M and A kind of discussions that maybe they'll materialize better, or there's no kind of venture equity discussions that maybe they're looking at that will materialize. You can't have a bridge to nowhere. We as VCs wouldn't be doing our fiduciary duty to our own LPs, and I think that's one of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they think about a VC that may not be able to participate in a bridge round or even lead a bridge round is that if you're a founder, you've got to think about the key milestones and hold yourself accountable to that and say, if I get a million, five million in kind of bridge financing, I'll get X, Y, and Z done in the next quarter. And that's credible. I think bridge rounds are totally fine. But all too often, it's just, hey, we're going to ask for a bridge round, we're going to do a few cuts, and we're going to hope that revenues stay flat or increase, or we'll be able to get to the next milestone. And so you got to really put in the work and uh,
0: model that out and actually make that a credible argument. Interesting. Interesting. And earlier you talked about a little bit about alternative finance. Can you dive a little bit deeper there and talk about some of the pros and cons of the options out there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say maybe starting with venture debt. That's one of the more common sources of financing. Usually it accompanies an equity round because many of these venture debt providers get comfortable that equity investors are also participating or leading around. And typically it's, it's the basics. It's interest rate, plus there's usually some warrant coverage, not too much. Plus there's covenants sometimes. And this is all very natural and normal for kind of a startup venture debt lending. And the key for entrepreneurs is really to understand what the covenant are to me that's where you, where thing where people get tripped up on is covenants can vary and they can be something as something as simple as having three months of cash on your balance sheet at all times right and Sometimes an entrepreneur or a company will enter into a debt facility and not realize that they actually need to have three months of cash on their balance sheet at all times, and they'll trip a covenant. And usually good venture debt folks, especially if the company's doing well, they'll work with the company to help them maybe extend the facility or basically meet that covenant or maybe even waive the covenant. So I think it's really important to look at covenants. They can be revenue-based milestones. They very much vary. My personal preference is you never want to put too much debt on a startup at the earlier stages, but there's definitely a place for debt as you scale. And and really, it's pouring more gas in the fire for companies doing really well. The structured rounds and the mezzanine rounds, I'd say they're more appropriate for later stage companies. And typically, what you see there is usually it's moving up from a 1x liquidation preference to 1.5 or ratcheting up to 2x based on certain milestones. And that may be appropriate for certain companies, say, for early stage Companies, I'd really avoid that. I'd almost put that in the predatory kind of category. If somebody's coming in with two, three X liquidation preferences for a series A company, there's got to be other sources of financing. And then you've got revenue based financing. A lot of people will engage with that. I mean, the challenge with that is you're giving up a piece of your revenue every time a transaction happens, or if you're a SaaS company, you've got to purchase a SaaS subscription you sell. And so you just need to ensure you're thinking about that appropriately and looking at the length of the rev share and other terms around that. There's a few companies that do this actually beyond the big banks but are focused more on SaaS companies or gaming companies to help them fund sales and marketing. I also think a new source of financing that was just announced by a venture fund called General Catalyst that came out maybe a day or two ago is interesting. Effectively, they're basically launching they've launched a fund that will fund all sales and marketing for a company and when basically the unit economics have to be right but they'll fund sales and marketing and the company only needs to pay it back until basically they get get a one X or 1.1 X or something like that. And I think it's, a really interesting way to basically manage your sales and marketing costs, which can get out of control. And instead of raising a lot of equity for sales and marketing, you're doing this in a way that is more controlled. That that recently came out, but I think there's a lot of alternatives out there. I think it's just important to look at the pros and cons. Venture debt's the most common and has historically been something that a lot of startups tack on to their equity rounds.
0: That's super interesting, the sales and marketing and that, because I mean, they would I would guess their covenants or whatever they Just that alone, when they're looking at your processes and that, that's a huge value. That's fascinating.
1: It's really interesting because, and this fund I think is more focused on later stage companies, Series C, D, and E, pre-IPO. The biggest use of proceeds when you raise equity or even debt at that stage is really pouring gas on the fire, right? You've got your unit economics figured out. You've basically got payback periods in a good spot. And now you just need capital to kind of fund purely sales and marketing. And and so it seems like there was a bit of, a, a disconnect there, especially in this current environment where companies didn't want to raise down rounds and be highly dilutive. They just needed capital. This is a way not to dilute your yourself or your existing shareholders, but also continue to grow if you've got those unit economics right. So it's not going to work for a company that doesn't have that all figured out, but there's still good companies out there that need capital and they just can't justify a
0: down round based on the public comps out there. So, so for these companies and yourself, when you're doing due diligence, so actually, let's just go for VCs. What is the step by step process that you're going through before you decide, okay, yes or no with this company? Well, I guess no could be at any time in that. What is the process before saying, yes, let's write a check?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say we do two things. One, we try to be thematic about the sectors we're looking at. And then two, we try to incorporate data science into how we're actually reducing that top of funnel down to maybe three companies in a sector that we think at the A&B are really interesting for, let's call it consumer fintech wealth management. I'm just throwing out an example there. But one of the things that we want to do is time is money for us, right? And we get a lot of pitches and we see a lot of companies. We want to narrow down very quickly who are the top three to five companies based on external signals. So web signals, mobile app downloads, that's where our data science team comes in. And we have our own internal algorithms that we use to score companies pretty quickly. And so in terms of outbound prospecting, that's really important. Next comes the thematic kind of work that we do with our network, referrals from co-investors. And so typically, if you see our data science score and our network sort of align, that to me is actually really interesting. And so I'll double click on that. And I'll basically spend time with those companies. And uh, typically, the first call is, really just understanding the business they may or may not be raising really just understanding the unit economics if it's a consumer or even saas business but it's really important at the same time reading the entrepreneur do they instill confidence in potentially recruiting a great cro later down the line would they be a good leader in terms of employee morale and hiring recruiting can they help with you know managing a massive cross functional team those are things that are hard to Get on the first call, but usually we spend a lot of time understanding the people because I keep coming back to this theme. But people are really important for us. As much of data as much data science as we use, people is equally as important. And so we can quickly get to conviction if we see a few things come into place. There's kind of four things I'd say. One is a great team, and you've got to have assembled a great kind of founding team with great kind of experience and ideally previous kind of leadership. Experience that has resulted in a good outcome. But having said that, we see a lot of great entrepreneurs that are first time entrepreneurs that also have those qualities. Number two is a product market fit, but then also an inflecting kind of point where if you're at 400K in AR, we can actually see that based on this pipeline of of great logos that you've got, you're probably going to hit a 5X kind of year on year return. And I'm focusing at the Series A kind of later seed stage because that's where we prospect from primarily right now. Although we do a lot of B and C and we have done that historically. And then number three, which is probably the most important, not the most important, but one of the biggest things is there's got to be some sort of change event or tail, tailwind that we can see this company riding on. And as an example right now, I'd say there's a lot of tailwinds in generative AI with open AI making a lot of these foundational models accessible to anyone. And so at the same time, we just need to see a change event in 2007, 2008, that was mobile apps and the smartphone kind of launching that created this whole ecosystem that spawned Uber and Airbnb on the mobile app side of things. And so there has to be some sort of macro trend that we see that, that will you know help propel this business moving forward. And then the final piece is really, we just need to have conviction internally as a partnership group. And we debate things quite intensely, but at the end of the day, for us, it's the majority wins, right? It doesn't need to be unanimous with our partnership group. And so if those four things align, usually we can write a term sheet and close pretty quickly.
0: So for those four things, From the time where they either there's that cold outreach or they get introduced to you to that very end, is it one or two in person meetings? Then you talk to the investment committee, then you do due diligence. Like, what are the steps?
1: Yeah. So I'd say, well, now we're in this kind of remote work era where a lot of people are in Zoom. So we do quite a lot of calls on Zoom ahead of time. And while we're doing those calls with the company on Zoom, we start to dig into if they have a data room or if they have more granular data around their KPIs, we start to dig into the data quite a bit. And that's where our data science team comes in and they help augment me as an investor because they basically will give like a scorecard, green, yellow, red, in terms of what's working What's not? Net revenue retention is great, but, you know, churn is actually not great on a logo side. So there's a whole bunch of things we look at, but we try to qualify the company that, and that's a lot of work that we do. Next up, we try to talk to a lot of product experts, right? So if you're an email marketing company, as an example, we want to talk to product managers at some of your competitors, right? MailChimp or Constant Contact or others out there. That's really important. And so we do a lot of background reference calls with companies that are usually competitive. And if they have neutral things to say, because most competitors don't say nice things, if they say neutral things to positive, then that's also a really strong signal for us. And once that happens, and we can understand that we can get a 5 to 10x return, that's what we're underwriting for, we'll bring in the entrepreneur to present to our broader partnership group. After that presentation, we do a, a quick vote, and then usually we'll issue a term sheet very quickly, and then do our typical legal, finance, tech, HR diligence, which is more check the boxes at that point. But we do take all that diligence quite seriously, especially this day and age when you hear about accounting irregularities and other things, quite important. So I'd say the hardest part is basically getting conviction to bring in an entrepreneur to present the broader to the broader
0: group. So that idea of the plane arrives in SFO and then the entrepreneur gets off and there's a check weighing for him, not likely?
1: I mean, there is for a few companies, but that idea of of little to no diligence, I think, has been extinguished. And even LPs, our own investors, are asking to ensure that there's a lot of diligence being done. You have heard, despite that, about certain firms investing big amounts with little to no diligence. But in many cases, those are repeat entrepreneurs. So the risk might be more mitigated. So I'd say those days are long gone. But but I'd say diligence should be welcomed by founders because you can learn a lot about what's working in your business and where you need to improve, not just on finance and, and accounting, but, you know, we look at like the actual code base, we look at the technical infrastructure and we have tech consultants that will make
0: recommendations and they can be invaluable further down the line. Now, we'd already mentioned about the networks and how important it is for VCs. How important is it for them to be a, looked at as a thought leader? in the VC world or a certain sector or that. I'd sort of say
1: being a thought leader is very important, but doing it in a credible way is even more important. And so you can be a thought leader in in many ways. Bill Gurley likes to be on Twitter, right? And that's his thing. That's fine. Others like to put out pretty long blog posts and get really deep into written material that can be shared or disseminated across the broader community. And so for us, being a thought leader specifically around certain domains is really important. And then we back it up with a track record because you can be a thought leader, but ultimately, you need to make a few investments and see good outcomes there before you get the most credibility, not just with other potential entrepreneurs you want to invest in, but LPs that are looking at that. So many times when we do thought leadership podcast or videos or, or even thought kind of pieces online with blog posts, we get our LPs that actually dial in to listen to us because that is really important. And that is one of the barriers or moats that you might have, not just as a partnership, but as a firm moving forward. So So for us, we try to be very clear on our website what areas we specifically focus on. I've got great partners that do everything from cybersecurity to climate tech to fintech to edtech. And we try to basically make it clear what our majors and our minors are going back to college. Right. So we've got a major and then we have a few minors in certain areas that you might be dabbling in as well. So that's how we think about thought leadership. but. To go back to your question, I think it's incredibly important. It's one of your moats as a VC. And if you can do it in an authentic way, even better. Not everyone needs to be on Twitter or
0: social media. So another question there, I think we've dabbled on a little bit about how much due diligence VCs do on the founders. Question, and I'm not sure if we've ever talked about this on the podcast before, how much due diligence do the LPs do on the VCs? it's
1: a great question they do an incredible
0: amount of
1: diligence on us I've got to ask my CFO but the, and VCs in general, but the data room for a venture fund is massive. And so there's a lot of data to be had right? in terms of each portfolio company. We've got over 90 portfolio companies and you can go back to, I've been here nine years, you can kind of look at every quarterly management report, you can look at everything out there. But ultimately, they're looking at money multiples and IRR and understanding DPI, how much you've actually paid back to your investors for every dollar that went in, how much... Did your previous LPs get in previous funds? And so there's a lot of work done, but then these also want to chat with every single partner out there. And they want to understand how you think. They want to understand why you invested in a company. And they want to understand, and I mentioned this earlier, how you source a company. And that goes back to how defensible they think your venture fund is versus the hundreds of other venture funds that are in the valley. And many venture funds can differentiate themselves in different ways. Some can be more boutique, very domain specific, focusing purely on crypto. Others can be more generalist, but really focus on data as a way to source new deals. Others focus on more on value add, right? Others have the Hollywood agency like Andreessen Horowitz, where they offer every single thing under the sun as a service for free to companies that enter their portfolio. So There's a lot of ways you can differentiate yourselves, but LPs are just looking for what is your unique kind of differentiator and they want to chat with everyone at the firm.
0: As a VC, how does life change once you start getting some logos on the website of companies you've invested in?
1: It's huge, right? We've got we've been fortunate to have some great logos like Snapchat, DocuSign, CrowdStrike in the cybersecurity side, or Box, GitLab more recently, which went public. And these logos give a lot of credibility, not just to other entrepreneurs, but especially to our LPs. and And so, ultimately, everyone wants to see a company that they invest in, see a nice trade sale or IPO, and it generates confidence that if we have a good track record of getting these companies from Series A to IPO and seeing a good outcome there, that we can actually uh, do this in a repeatable way. So logos are absolutely critical, just like a logo would be critical as a case study for an enterprise software company. If they've got a lot of great logos of other customers, it creates a little bit of that FOMO and uh, hey, I should be partnering with these guys. They know what they're doing. And then,
0: well, I mean, now you have 90 companies, 90 logos. Yeah. Can you tell us a couple of stories of maybe when when you met them, what made you decide, okay, we're... Write and check for this company or that. And if you want to leave out names, don't worry about it. But I'm really curious about what was that? Just as the LPs probably asked you why this company, I'm also curious as well if you could share some stories.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll start with a company called Super, super super.com. They formerly were known as Snap Travel or Snap Commerce, but we ended up participating in the Series A1 back in 2018, I believe. And I'd known the founder, Hussein, through my previous job I mentioned earlier at that ad network called Ad Knowledge. We actually acquired his company while we were on the M&A kind of corp dev side of things. And I've always known him to be a hustler. And when he basically eventually exited the business and finished his earnout, et cetera, and was looking at doing something new, he came over to San Francisco, Silicon Valley. He was originally based in Toronto, came out of Waterloo, great university, technical in nature, and was just looking at everything from esports to SaaS companies and just trying to figure out his next opportunity that he wanted to disrupt. And he had a co-founder, his CTO at the time, named Henry. And so he came over and he happened to be a big Golden State Warriors fan as a SMI. And so we were watching a Warriors game one day and he basically just penciled out a few ideas. And one of them was around sort of an esports business. Another one was around this idea of enabling conversational commerce and basically allowing any millennial or any user to book through just chat. And mainly by chat, I mean Facebook Messenger or SMS. And so he was talking about this idea of conversational commerce that was quite big in Asia. When we think about WeChat and how you use WeChat as a super app to do everything from hailing a cab to checking the equivalent of LinkedIn to buying items. And so his idea was that conversational commerce will continue to grow in Asia, but at some point it will become bigger in the West. And so I really liked that concept. He was seeing great metrics and great growth. At the time, Facebook Messenger was doing quite well. And uh, and so we ended up investing just over seven mil in the Series A1 extension back in 2018. As part of that, we also brought on Steph Curry as a co-investor. He happened to know his business manager and we felt like it would be a good partnering and we were both hoops junkies. So we brought him as along as well. And then there's a lot of articles about that. But then the company continued to evolve. And over time, basically in 2020, travel, which was their main sector of focus, was hit pretty hard. And that's when we saw the real nitty gritty side of the founders come out. They quickly shifted to an EBITDA positive model. They were very thoughtful about how they managed cost. And and very quickly, towards the end of basically in 2021, when travel, particularly tier two travel, driving to Lake Tahoe or not getting on a plane, but driving, they had shifted the business to focus on kind of tier two travel and they were growing like a weed. And so they ended up getting a growth round done which we participated in back in 2021 and it really came to light how versatile these these two guys actually were. And when we invested in the Series A1, I'll be very open. I think we overpaid in terms of the valuation. I think it was quite expensive. But the bet was they would grow into that valuation and that we were betting on these two entrepreneurs who, at the time, we didn't know that they'd have all these headwinds coming at them with COVID and the 2022 kind of macro environment, etc. But they would be able to navigate that. And so I bring that up because that's really important when we look at new investments. And that was one that, knock on wood, has continued to do well. But you know they're operating now with a new tailwind, which I think is generative AI because they started off as the original conversational commerce platform. They had this AI chatbot. And now people can go on there and who knows what the future holds, but you can plan your trip itinerary and then execute the actual buying of the hotels all through their platform. And so there's so many great ways that you can see that business growing. But you know, there's all these things, both tailwinds and headwinds that come at you. And so so we're very proud of that company and what they've done.
0: And Yash, as we wrap up, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, the fund, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that. And also if you have any other stories or tidbits of information you want to leave our audience, now's the time to do so.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. So I mean, usually LinkedIn is really great for me. And then our website, telstraventures.com is great to find out. And you'll see a list of our portfolio companies and specifically the ones I cover, not just travel, conversational commerce, but everything from esports and gaming to vertical SaaS companies. And I'd say that we're entering in a kind of a very interesting environment where there's a lot to be Optimistic for, but then there's a lot of pessimism that we've seen with Sil- Silicon Valley Bank and the macro economy, and so I'd say we we always look at it, look at the world with a more optimistic view and in particular, when you're focusing on some of these change events that I talked about earlier, we see a lot of tailwinds that are going to benefit Silicon Valley and the tech ecosystem more generally. And I talked about one of them around generative AI, but there's a lot more that we're betting on. So for the builders out there, continue building and and do reach out to us.
0: Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Please connect with me on LinkedIn or go To the Silicon Valley where you can find out all our past shows and what we're working on. And with that, Yash, I want to thank you one more time for taking the time this week to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.